It's May 19th, and this is the Vegetable Beat, a weekly discussion during the growing season about uh, issues related to vegetable production in the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. So I'm your host, Natalie Hoydell from Minnesota. Ben Phillips from Michigan State is behind the curtain as our Zoom engineer. And today we're talking with Lori Hoagland, an associate professor of soil microbial ecology at Purdue. Uh, we're going to be talking about our vascular mycorrhizal fungi and other microbial inoculants. So this episode was inspired by recent discussions that we've been seeing on grower listservs about when it's worth adding these types of products as you're transplanting or when you're seeding, when it's not, which crops you should be applying them to. Um, so we thought we'd go to an expert who has been studying these organisms and vegetable crops to learn some more. So we will, we can address your questions kind of throughout. Uh, we've got a few questions we came up with ahead of time that we're going to start with, but feel free to put your questions in the chat, or even if you're streaming on Facebook, you can just put them right in the Facebook uh, comments there, and Ben will be monitoring that. Um, and if you are a certified crop advisor, feel free to put your email and contact information in the chat so we can get you credits. So, Lori, why don't we just start out with kind of a general introduction to yourself, your work, your interest in um, soil microbial communities in general. Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me um, on the podcast and this week. This is fun to um, to meet with you both and learn about what's happening in Michigan and Minnesota um, and talk with any growers out there. Um, so as you mentioned, um, I'm a professor at um, Purdue University um, in Indiana, and I specifically study soil microbial ecology. Um, and I guess I, I got into this field, I, you know, I work more broadly in the area of agroecology, just trying to understand how we can, um, you know, use more natural relationships to enhance agriculture. And um, during the course of my study, I learned about soil microbes and all the things that they're doing in the soil, um, how they're interacting with plants in ways that can um, you know, enhance both the productivity as well as the sustainability of production systems. And so I study all these microbes, how they're shifting in soils, looking for ways that we can, you know, better tease out how to, to manage those um, in ways that enhance plant health. And so we do some things around nutrient cycling, just trying to understand how microbes play a role in, in releasing nutrients and helping plants get nutrients at the right time um, to help them um, in their productivity and to withstand pests, um, but also to reduce loss to the environment. And then we also look at how microbes are trying to understand how to improve plant microbial relationships that will help plants withstand um, pathogen pressure so we can reduce the need for um, pesticides and then some in the area of abiotic stresses, things like heat and water and things like that. So, yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, so I'm going to start with the second thing you said, which is pathogen pressure. So one of the main reasons that I see Minnesota growers exploring some of these products and especially organic growers is to help with disease prevention. And so I know you've done a little bit of work with trichoderma and tomato pathogens. So I'm curious if you can share what you learned about that project and a little bit more broadly, how these products can, um, or maybe might not be effective in <laughs> disease suppression. Sure. Yeah. So, so most, a lot of my work, we've worked in kind of several, um, 
crop systems, but most specifically, we've been doing a lot of work in tomatoes and and trying to identify ways to use microbes to help with um, tomato pathogens because tomatoes are a very popular crop um, in vegetable systems here in the Midwest in general. And they also have lots of pests and pathogens that that like to attack them. Um, And so we've been looking at trying to identify, yeah, ways to promote the abundance and populations of microbes that can fight back against these pathogens, either directly or through indirect ways of helping um, the plant to manage or deal with those pathogens, that pathogen stress. And so there's a number of different ways potentially that these beneficial microbes can do this. Um, So more directly, maybe that the the beneficial microbe can outcompete the pathogen on the surface of the root or a leaf for resources and things like that. And so it just doesn't allow the pathogen to get hold. Um, another way that these microbes can fight pathogens and reduce disease pr- pressure is by producing um, toxic compounds like antibiotics that directly suppress um, some of these pathogens that cause disease. Uh, in some cases, the pathogen can actually parasit or the beneficial microbes, sorry, can actually parasitize the pathogen, like kind of piercing it and sucking out its um, resources and things like that. And then lastly, there's a, a phenomenon known as induced systemic resistance, where sometimes these beneficial microbes can stimulate a plant's immune system, kind of like a vaccine. And that initially the the plant kind of reacts, their their immune system goes up, but then it goes back down. But then when the pathogen does come, it can mount a faster um, immune response against these pathogens and to prevent disease. Um, And then there's also some indirect ways that these beneficial microbes could help a plant by like just helping them acquire water and nutrients or withstand heat that allows them then to better um, suppress the pathogen and prevent disease. And so there's a number of microbes that have been isolated that kind of have some of these um, potential activities. And one of those is trichoderma. Um, There's a lot of Trichoderma, they're fungal species that can be isolated from soil um, and plants, and they have been noted to suppress um, diseases in um, a number of plants. And so we've been kind of really focusing in on that organism because it's kind of a well-studied organism in that way. And so we know there's all sorts of studies and we've done this in our lab too. We're in a, in a greenhouse, you can apply this microbe and then you come with a pathogen and it works really well. But then when we get out to the field and we apply some of these, in some cases it works and in some cases it doesn't work um, at all. And so we're trying to do research to really tease that out a little bit better and really understand you know, where it can work and where it um, can't. And, um, you know, one way that we've seen that the trichoderma can be really um, beneficial as inoculant and help vegetable, particularly transplants, is when we actually apply it to the transplant. So in ecology, there's, you know, these this thing called priority effects, where if you get there first and kind of establish yourself, um, maybe you have a stronger chance to survive because we know when we take these microbes out to the field, there's 
billions of microbes already living out there. And so these inoculants have to kind of compete with all of those. Um, so we've um, done some studies just, yeah, again, looking at if we take tomatoes and we inoculate them before we go out to the field, can that help them kind of survive transplant stress, which could be due to the presence of some soilborne pathogens, but it could also be things like heat. Um, and so we just finished a trial um, a two-year trial. And in the first year, we, you know, we saw some effect where the path, the tomatoes survived um, better if they had the, the trichoderma inoculant. But then last year, we, I guess, kind of got lucky in terms of being researched and then we transplanted and then we had this huge um, heat wave and wind come in and we saw really dramatic um, increases in survival in plants that had this trichoderma um, inoculant. So, that's one way um, where we've, I think we've, we've seen ways that, you know, that's can enhance um, the survival of these inoculants. Um, another thing we've kind of been looking at is, you know, how does the, the resource of the soil um, help in, in helping these beneficial inoculants to survive? And so I had a student who just did a study with um, a leaf mold compost and that, Applying the leaf mold compost to the soil, um, you know, it, in, it increased the, the aeration in the soil, um, you know, just kind of provided a, a better habitat. So to, at least we were hoping, um, and it turned out to be that that was the case that, um, you know, if you're going into an environment where the, the organism has resources to survive, maybe that can be better than trying to grow into more of a degraded soil. Um, and then lastly, the third thing we've been looking at um, and seeing a really strong response to is with tomato genotype um, or variety. So we know that plants and their abilities to um, host and these beneficial microbes can potentially vary given their, their genetics. Um, and so we, we kind of went back on this very long um, list of, you know, from early domesticates, the ancestors of tomatoes into more modern tomatoes. And we've seen kind of a, unfortunately, a progressive decline in the ability of the plants, tomatoes to um, keep these microbes alive and then benefit them in terms of pathogen suppression. So we're working on ways now to, you know, how can we use this um, moving forward and really develop new varieties that are more responsive, but we know, you know, it's pretty strong evidence that could be one reason why um, these microbes can survive in one situation and not another. That's super interesting. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. Um, a, a couple of just quick follow-up questions to some yeah. of the things that you just said. Um, so let's start with the most recent thing about like more distant tomato ancestors having the ability to form these relationships. How far back are we talking there? Are we saying, like, <laughs> are you saying that like, maybe an heirloom tomato would have a better ability to form relationships than a more modern hybrid? Or are we talking like way back in terms of like wild <laughs> plant relatives? Yeah. So in our study, we went way back to the wild okay. relatives and the, the Andes mountains where tomatoes originated yeah. from. And then we have more like what we call land races, which are a little bit more modern. And then we also looked at heirlooms and um, modern hybrids um, and our 
varieties that we've been producing under organic systems as well as conventional systems. And so really the strongest response, unfortunately for us, was way back in the wild ones, which, you know, makes sense from an ecological standpoint. Um, We really didn't see that much of a difference between heirlooms and modern like hybrids. Um, You know, there was some kind of slight differences, but where we did see an actual boost within our modern germplasm was the varieties that we've been working on um, breeding under organic systems as part of our Tomi tomato organic management and improvement project. And so it wasn't, it wasn't as much as the wild ones. Um, So we need to do some more to understand how to kind of bring that capacity back in. Um, Yeah. Okay. Really cool. Um, I guess one comment that someone left, thank you for this Zoom learning experience. My takeaway is that heirloom varieties really are stronger plants. Do you want to comment on that? Just sort of, I'm curious about that. Where does heirloom begin and land race? And like, yeah, so that, yeah, so land races really go back farther than the heirlooms. Um, and so when we look at kind of tomato domestication, you, you have the wild types and then the land races that are, are pretty close to that. They've been kind of selected locally, but they're still pretty variable. And then heirlooms are really more modern um, varieties that have been handed down. Um, and so in some ways, yeah, heirlooms are very interesting. They have a lot of tend to have unique characteristics and and value. Um, But when we look genetically, they're actually quite narrow compared to some of our wild um, germplasm, of course, but also even some of our more modern um, lines that have bred bred more recently. And so there was a time where we were breeding for, you know, plants that had specific attributes that maybe the backyard gardener isn't that interested in. Um, But now with breeding, um, you know, there's a lot of efforts to bring in more genetic diversity to our modern plants. And so I would say some of our modern open pollinated um, tomato varieties, for example, what we've been working on in our Tomi project are actually have um, stronger disease resistance than heirlooms, and they still have a lot of the the beneficial characteristics that backyard gardeners are looking for. So we're breeding now for unique flavor, unique shapes and things like that, while also trying to bring in um, disease resistance and things. So um, in some cases, yeah, heirlooms can be great, but I think there's also benefits of of modern breeding and, um, and some of the improved varieties that are still coming out. That's awesome. Um, so, so I'm curious, you talked about in your trials, you basically saw just better resilience to transplant shock. Um, I know you, so you weren't exactly looking at disease suppression, but did you sort of anecdotally see any disease suppression or measure that beyond just the initial transplant shock? Yeah. So we were, you know, in that part of the study, we didn't see you know, it happened so quickly, some of the, the, the die-off, you know, and some of it, I think, could have been due to the presence of some soil-borne pathogens, like, you know, that were causing kind of a more of a damping off type of thing um, versus just pure, like, heat stress and things that the plants were seeing. So, um, I think we need to do some more work to really tease out what um, happened there. So we did try to, though, follow through the course of the experiment to see, you know, do did we see less, at least foliar disease pressure um, in the tomato plants themselves? And so we did 
Um, you know, it wasn't very strong, but there were a couple time points where we did see lower um, pathogen pressure, at least foliar disease symptoms in the plants that had received the inoculant in one year, not in another year. So again, kind of coming back to, we're not exactly sure what was happening and why, you know, it could just be that there was a lot more disease pressure in the year that we did see a little bit of difference there. Um, but yeah. Okay. So you talked a little bit about mechanisms for increased vigor or resilience, whatever you want to call it, um, when using microbial inoculants. And one of the things that you mentioned was induced systemic resistance. And one of the cautions that I guess I've heard with the idea of induced systemic resistance is that it's expensive in terms of energy output to have kind of an immune response. And so if there is a problem, it's great, but in years where conditions are really good, that plant may be expending more energy on defense than it needs to. Is that something that you actually see? <laughs> like, are you yeah, actually, I mean, or is that just like a theoretical <laughs> thing that could happen? No, I think we, we have seen that in some of our more controlled studies for sure. And that, you know, you do see a bit of a, you know, a, a cost in terms of hosting these microbes and, and performing these relationships. Sure. Um, so I think that is, um, you know, definitely a consideration, you know, in the field, you know, how much, how much that plays in because there's already so mi many microbes there and causing that, you know, it's hard to kind of tease out, but yeah, anytime a plant is hosting any beneficial microbe, there, there is a cost to that. And that's why, you know, some of these other microbes that I think we'll talk about later, like AMF or vascular mycorrhizal fungi or rhizobia, even if the plant has kind of alternative means, it kind of will shuttle those things off and not bother to waste resources on hosting these beneficials versus, um, yeah, using these relationships. Okay. So that's a good segue. Um, I wanted, I know you've already talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to ask uh, more specifically about nutrient uptake and stress resistance. That's one of the other reasons that people use these products is that they can help with nutrient uptake. Um, and I know you've done some work specifically with AMF, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And it could also be more broad if you want to include other microbes too. Sure. Yeah. I'll talk about AMF. Um, so we haven't um, done a lot of work really specifically on the inoculant side, we've really more like a lot of our studies are um, not so much about inoculants themselves, but just how we're managing our soils, whether using cover crops or adding compost or how much nutrients you're adding and how is that shifting mycorrhizal communities in soil and, and that, that are interacting with plants. And then what does that mean for um, nutrient uptake as well as um, some abiotic plant stress. And so one study that uh, a student finished up recently that I'm really excited about is um, she was looking at arbuscular mycorrhizal fungal communities in soil systems and then how that would influence a plant's ability to withstand drought stress. And so she collected um, soils from these long-term crop systems trials that we were doing where we were comparing we had kind of an intensive conventional management system where we were just using inorganic fertilizers and other things to, to support the plant. And then a more what we called soil building um, 
intensive organic system where we were using winter cover crops every year, um, you know, using organic fertilizers and things like that to um, to feed the plants. And so she, um, you know, took these and, and isolated the microbes, well, isolated the, the soil and kind of created these experiments um, and used soybeans and then was, or subjected the plants to drought stress or not. And so one of the interesting things is that she found um, in the organic soil building systems, the, the concentrations or abundance of our vascular mycorrhizal fungi were more abundant and they were also more diverse. And then those plants having those, um, what was probably certain species of mycorrhiza, the plants were better able to withstand the drought stress. So without those, the plants really suffered. Um, and then we went back in the fall actually and collected new samples again um, to see, you know, how about over the, the soybean system and the communities had actually changed a lot by then, um, by the end of the season, which was also, I thought, really interesting. Um, and some of those unique species that were really helpful in helping the plant um, withstand drought stress weren't present anymore. And so it, it goes to show that mycorrhiza are very dependent on plants to reproduce. And so having the right host there is really important. And so what we think happened in that study, and we, we need to dig a little bit deeper, is that these winter cover crops are supporting some of these more um, unique species that were then helping the tomato plant. And so the tomato plant wasn't, or I'm sorry, the soybean plant wasn't very good at helping those mycorrhiza reproduce and sustain in soil, um, but they benefited from them a lot. And so, um, you know, I guess the moral of the story is you have to keep <laughs> the, the beneficial practices going. So growing a cover crop, winter cover crop one year would probably not sustain these beneficial um, AMF communities. But um, if you use them every year and kind of keep this soil building kind of um, approach up that you could potentially keep these kinds of communities um, more present. Um, so another way we've been looking at AMF is more specifically then too in terms of um, nutrient uptake and how diversity really influences nutrient uptake. And so a lot of people know that Mycorrhizal species can be really helpful um, in increasing phosphorus uptake, but also things like iron and zinc. And so again, we've been going out to fields that have been managed with kind of more healthy soil building organic practices and conventional practices and looking at how that um, influences not just essential nutrients like phosphorus, iron and zinc, but also some of the the bad elements that we don't want plants to get like cadmium, which are heavy metals that can be in soil and negatively um, influence plant health. And so my student did a study with this and yeah, same thing with the more diverse communities. We saw much greater uptake of phosphorus, iron um, and zinc. Um, and we also saw relationships with the heavy metals. And so when you have lower diversity, um, you, we were seeing more heavy metal uptake and, and kind of, I guess, what stirred this study initially is that we, in terms of looking at what drives heavy metal uptake, there's, we've seen when we add mycorrhizal inoculants, at least in our greenhouse study, like Rhizophagus irregularis, we can get increased cadmium uptake. And so we wanted to understand too, if we add these inoculants, are we going to disrupt the 
the AMF communities that are already present that aren't taking up those heavy metals. And luckily we did not <laughs> see a, that response occur, which was good. But the rhizophagus irregularis on its own did kind of increase um, the, those uptake dynamics. So there's a lot happening and there's a lot to tease out. Um, but yeah, yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> provides some <laughs> to make sure I understood yeah. that correctly. Yeah. The, the native AMF communities helped with uptake of nutrients, but they did not increase uptake of heavy metals. Correct. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I'm curious, you mentioned your cover crop mix helped to foster like a more diverse and more abundant AMF community, which cover crops were in that mix. And do you know offhand, like, are there certain species that do better than others? Yeah. So that's something we want to tease out a lot more. Um, and we didn't, you know, specifically, unfortunately, in this study, look at that. We've been using kind of a general mix of um, a lot of grass species. So ryegrass, cereal rye and legumes like um, hairy vetch. Um, we've had field pea in the mixes. And so both of those like any legumes tend to support mycorrhiza as well as some of these more fibrous um grass roots. And so I really, I wish I knew how to answer that question about which species seems to support these, um, these, you know, specific AMF species, but I think we need some more work to, to tease that out. Yeah. And it's fine if there's not a good answer to this, but can I ask that same question about vegetables? Just because often we hear that like brassicas don't support AMF communities, and even like some quinopodium species, is that accurate? Are there, is that something farmers should be thinking about as they make their rotations? Yeah, so that, yeah, there definitely is variability. Um, and there are certain plant families, as you mentioned, both the brassicas and the quinopodia that um, seem to over evolutionary time have kind of, um, they no longer really support a robust populations of AMF. So they've kind of, move to other strategies to acquire phosphorus and other um, elements in the soil. So there is some evidence they do have some loose associations, but they don't seem to benefit as well as some other um, plant families do. Like we know carrots seem to respond very strongly um, to our vascular mycorrhizal fungi as well as tomatoes. And so, um, you know, we've kind of looked into that a little bit and like, oh, you know, does it does having one of those seem to um, reduce those populations in soil? And it, it doesn't seem to have like, you know, you say you grow one of those crops and, and they're just gone. Um, so those spores can um, survive over, you know, in the presence of a crop that doesn't, you know, really support them as well as some others. Um, but to kind of, I think, hedge your bets a little bit to after you've had a, a non mycorrhizal host, it's good to rotate those crops with more mycorrhizal hosts and cover crops that can also support those just to rebuild those populations in soil. So Ben is commenting here, I wonder if the carrots love tomatoes concept of companion planting is an observation of this AMF effect. Yeah, it could be what we were talking about early on of how AMF are kind of amazing creatures and that they, they seem to, you know, uh, they share resources. They can connect to different plant species at the same time. Um, there's a lot of really interesting studies that have been done and showing that, you know, plants not only 
can share carbon and other resources through these below ground arbuscular mycorrhizal networks, but they can also even signal um, their neighboring um, plant to say, hey, this pest is coming, upregulate your defense processes. And so I haven't seen specifically whether, you know, having, you know, carrots and tomato versus, um, you know, if you had a, a tomato next to a cabbage, if that would change those dynamics, but it would be interesting to, to investigate that for sure. So I have one last question, maybe set of questions, and then we can <laughs> open it up to the audience. Um, okay. But I think the thing that I struggle with in navigating all of this is that there's just like, there's so much and there's so many different types of products that you can buy with whether it's AMF or trichoderma or bacillus, like there are all these different organisms. And so are there any like general pieces of advice you would give a grower who's looking at all those options and wondering which one is right for their circumstance? (laughs) And is there any harm in just sort of like guessing and trying something? Yeah, that's a really tough question. (laughs) Um, You know, and one of the, you know, I think to me, these inoculants are are interesting. They're great. I mean, you know, we isolate them all the time in my lab and we, you know, we do these greenhouse studies to, to show great effects there. So I think if we can get to the point where we can reliably apply these in the field um, and know that they're going to work, then, you know, that's really going to benefit farmers. But, um, you know, in the meantime, you know, it's somewhat questionable, Um, You know, farmers can afford to do it as kind of an insurance policy um, that I think it's has potential to have benefits. We don't, you know, it might not, though. So there's a lot to tease out. Um, I think the bottom line for me, though, is, you know, going back to just soil health and that there are all these beneficial microbes already present in soil. And if you feed the soil and keep your soil healthy by having you know, good aeration, good texture, lots of more active carbon, that that's a a really strong way to just support these populations also in your soil without maybe needing um, to rely on some of these, um, these beneficial inoculants. But there are cases where I think, you know, it's very well established that these can have a benefit. And one of those is just with um, legumes and rhizobia. So we know a lot of legumes are very dependent on certain types of micro or rhizobia. And if those aren't present in soil, it's hard for them to kind of find those. And so there's an example where um, inoculants have been used for a long time and, you know, because of these very specific relationships. And so I think as we learn more, hopefully, um, I think we can find better ways to kind of support those of, you know, using, you know, tomatoes that are really well adapted to host, you know, trichoderma or other things like that. But um, yeah, <laughs> I think those are some of my general advice. That's some of my general advice. All right. Thank you. Um, so I think with that, we can open it up to audience questions. If anyone else has any Someone is asking whether there is an expiration. So say you buy a product. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a great question. And I'm glad you brought that up. And so whenever you're working with microbials, you have to realize, yeah, you're working with live organisms. And so definitely there is um, an expiration date on these project products. And also 
considerations people need to think about in terms of storage. So a lot of times, you know, you get these and they need to be refrigerated um, until you're going to use them um, ideally. And if you, you know, sit them somewhere and they're in the sun, that could like break them down really quickly. So um, yeah, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind for sure. I'll ask one follow-up question so that they don't see anything else. You mentioned um, in your study where you were looking at heavy metals, where you added like an an inoculate of AMF where there was already an established native population. Did you see any resulting competition from that or any negative effects of adding the new strain? Yeah, so that that's what we were worried about, um, and um, and there is some evidence. Like I've seen some other um, studies. There's a woman in Canada who does some really great um, AMF work, Miranda Hart, and I think you know she's seen some things where in some places these these inoculants do seem to um, suppress native communities. In other cases, not at all. And in our system, we did not see. Um, any change because of when we added in this beneficial uh, or this inoculant of the single species. And so, you know, one of the dangers is a lot of the the AMF inoculants out there are kind of easier to grow species. And so they could be potentially more competitive against some of our natives, but um, at least in our one study at this point in Indiana, we did not see that. So Andrew is wondering if you are inoculating leaf mold compost with trichoderma, why would the naturally occurring trichoderma species not have priority effect and outcompete the formulated trichoderma? Yeah, so that's a great question. And if you if you have some really um, alive microbial live um, compost product, that's definitely um, a, a consideration <laughs> that that could occur. And so that's actually a really important point, and that we really didn't. Um, you know, tease that out so much in our study of whether this was really the inoculant we were adding or were we just seeing more um, trichoderma that were present um, in that leaf mold compost itself. And so, you know, that would be really interesting to to study and follow. Um, But I think, yeah, and it kind of goes back to two, just promoting soil health more naturally through using compost and things like that. And, um, yeah, that was a really good question. So that that would make sense that definitely if they're already present, unless in the new one that you inoculate is much more competitive, but then you could also end up with some of these dynamics like AMF. So yeah, great question. All right. So someone I think in the Facebook chat is asking whether you can buy any of these products in like smaller volumes or maybe a backyard gardener or a small scale grower. So you don't have a stockpile of containers. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not the best person to answer that question, but I would imagine like, um, you know, places like Johnny's seed company, um, and some of those, you know, other places do have small volumes. Like I know you can buy small volumes of legume, um, inoculants. And so I would imagine that they're out there. Um, another place that comes to mind is Peaceful Valley out in California that might have smaller scale volumes mm-hmm. and maybe in your local garden store. <laughs> yeah, I've seen smaller volumes at places like Johnny's. And I was going to say at my local garden store, I know with the rhizobium for legumes, they take like the, you know, still not huge volumes, but big enough of like endure 
and they put it in, like they individually repackage it into teeny containers. Oh, okay. for gardens, so that's something nice. to look into. Yeah. Um, let's see. So one question I sometimes get is growers are really interested in like really any way to test the health of their soil. Um, and a lot of that is just kind of thing, you know, like feeling it, doing jar tests, things like that. Um, but people do seem to be really interested in various tests, like the Haney test or looking at microbial diversity. <laughs> like, are there any tests you can do to assess native populations of these things in your soil? Or are there maybe more broadly, like types of soil <laughs> or attributes of soil where you can like assume that you have populations of microbes? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> and another one that's, you know, hard to answer. Um, and so there are, you know, in terms of really looking at whole communities and what's there that, you know, there are ways to do that. It's, it's very involved. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of this advanced kind of, you know, whole community sequencing in our lab. And there are some companies that are starting to, um, offer these tests. So there's actually a company, uh, I'm not going to remember, I'd have to look it up in California that now kind of offers a whole microbiome um, test. And they're really targeting more towards um, soil-borne pathogens that might be present in your soil. Um, so the caveat is these are very expensive. I think it's like $190 um, a sample. And there's also, you know, other labs where you can, like you said, you know, microbial activity, things like that, um, that give you some indication, I would say, about um, the health or kind of general populations that are in soil. Um, in terms of testing labs, I always go back to the, like the Cornell Soil Health Testing Lab, I think provides some really unique um, and, you know, they're kind of pricey, but um I like how they kind of break things down into, okay, your soil's compacted. You need to address this for, with some test because that's where microbes live and they're happy. And this is, you know, your microbial activity is kind of low. So um, address this here. So yeah, there are ways to do it. Um, but there's also, like you said, simple things that you can do to kind of look at the health of your soil. And, and I do a lot of work with carrots and I think carrots are a great kind of indicator of soil health and that, you know, if your soil is compacted, um, it doesn't drain well, you know, your carrots are going to be stunted, they're, they're going to be all forked and things like that, you know, maybe they're, they're not going to taste very good. Um, whereas if you have more of a healthy soil, you're going to get a nice, like kind of longer tap root where the, the, the plant is able to kind of move through that soil profile. And so whether that tells you if you have beneficial microbes or not, we don't really know for sure, but more chances than not, if you have a healthier soil, you have more populations of these microbes that are helping your plants. And so that's, to me, a really simple way to kind of um, know if there could be a potential problem. Yeah. Great. Well, I am not seeing other questions, really. I think that's a nice thing to wrap up with. Um, I'll just do the outro here. This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a group of extension educators and researchers across the Great Lakes region, and is sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Join us every week at this time throughout the growing season. And you can, of course, also listen to the podcast afterwards. Um, next week, Katie King from Nebraska will be interviewing Ajay Nair at Iowa State 
and Hannah Breckbill from Humble Hands Harvest Farm about summer lettuce production. Mm, that sounds like a good one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone who joined us in person. Thanks for your questions. And thank you so much, Lori, for joining us. I learned a lot today. Had fun talking yeah. to you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed um, talking with you as well and learning about what you're doing.